Welcome to episode 130, the story of spiritualist and medium Mary Langley. Couple things before I begin. First of all, if you're looking for events to get you in the Halloween spirit, I have a few suggestions. My coworker is an actress, and she's one of the characters in the Victorian Ghost Walk hosted by Louisville Historic Tours. This event sounds like a lot of fun. It only runs October 20th through the 22nd, but there are lots of different times on those three days, and you can still get tickets. I will be there for one of the nights. I just haven't figured out which one yet. Also, there's a paranormal research group out of southern Indiana called Boo 812. They're hosting a paranormal experience night at Raven's Roost Boutique in New Albany on October 27th. You can find out more about them and their events by searching Boo812 on Facebook or go to boo812.org. That's got their list of upcoming events right there on the front page. The state of Kentucky has launched a new tourism campaign called Kentucky After Dark. I've already posted about it on social media. This is so cool. This campaign features 12 sites across the state highlighting the increasing fascination with the supernatural, paranormal, and legendary lore. You get yourself a passport, and then you get a sticker every time you visit one of these attractions, which are things like Waverly Hills, the Anderson Hotel, the Dog Man at Kentucky Lake, Octagon Hall, and the Battletown Witch Festival. You can find out more at KentuckyAfterDark.com. Also, Louisville Beer Week is October 20th through 27th, and you can find all things beer-related by searching Louisville Ale Trail on Facebook or by visiting louisvillealetrail.com. I also want to remind you all, especially those of you who may be newer here, how this show operates. I'm a one-woman show. I do the research, the writing, and the recording. I manage my website. I design the show merch. I run all the social media pages and respond to your emails. And all costs related to producing this show come out of my pocket. And it is a labor of love, and I do have a full-time job to pay the bills. So I try not to spend a lot of money on getting this show out. Two of my biggest expenses are my website hosting and my subscription to newspapers.com. My website is about 240 a year, and the renewal is coming up, so I thought it would be a good time to hit you all up for a monetary donation. I know what it's like to have a bunch of random monthly charges on your statement. We all have subscriptions to a million things. So if you want to be a monthly supporter, I'm hugely appreciative, but there are other ways you can support me too, like a one-time donation through Venmo or PayPal. And the most fun way you could support me is to send a Halloween card, just throw $5 in it like my grandma used to, and I'll put my Venmo and my PayPal and my work address in the show notes. Um, I try not to hit you all up for money very often, but I do put a ton of work into this show. And even though it's not for money, it's because I love doing it. It would be nice to just be able to offset my expenses. Having some technical difficulties this morning, but all I was saying is whatever financial contribution you are comfortable making at this time, I would really appreciate it. Okay, now one last thing. While I was not raised in a religious household, I am very, very open to ideas and lessons and principles from various religions. Um, I'm definitely not an atheist, and I, I'm just open. And actually, one of my goals in the next couple years is to explore my own spirituality more. But I don't like the idea of religion as a business. And unfortunately, spiritualism became a big business. 
I believe that throughout time, there are people who truly believed and still believe they can communicate with or summon the dead. Whether they can or not is another question, but I think there are people who truly believe they can. And so offering that service to the public when you honestly think you can do it is one thing. But if, like most, you believe it was a gift bestowed upon you from a higher power, do you really think that higher power's intention was for you to profit off of it? I don't. I, I can't imagine personally having the ability to connect people to their dead loved ones and charging money for it, or going on stage to do it like a theatrical performance. That's where mediums lose me. And I think once people saw how much money could be made preying on these desperate people, things got out of control, especially in a place like Camp Chesterfield. What, it's a coincidence that so many people in this one little town have this rare gift? It's hard to believe. So I hope that helps when you hear me in this episode sound skeptical of Mary Langley. It's, it's not that I'm skeptical of every medium ever. It's based on evidence in this story that you'll hear in a minute. I don't think Mary was one of the people who truly believed she could communicate with the dead. Because those people, whether they are delusional or maybe truly gifted with this ability, I can give them a pass. They genuinely think they're helping people. But I don't think Mary was one of them. I think she was influenced by people she grew up around who showed her how she could successfully profit from a career as a medium. It took a long time and a lot of digging to find the origin story of Mary, but I finally found it. She was originally Mary Hinderer, born in March of 1884 to John and Mary Hinderer in Greenville, Ohio. When she was around four years old, the family moved to Anderson, Indiana. Mary's father, John, owned a music store, and then he manufactured incubators for a while but his true passion in life was serving his community as a spiritualist medium. I really couldn't find much more about her early life, but I was so relieved to figure out how she got into spiritualism, and as it turned out, it was a family business. Mary is in the newspapers in Anderson in 1916, which is where Camp Chesterfield was located. There is an ad for the Spiritualist Temple on 13th and Madison Streets, and it reads, Messages by Mrs. Mabel Riffle and Trumpet Test by Mrs. Mary Langley. I'll explain Trumpet Test later. But this was a weekly event advertised in the paper all the time. And yes, by 1916, she had gotten married and went from Mary Hinderer to Mary Langley, though I'm not exactly sure when they got married, but I do know they had one son together. The week before Christmas, 1921, you could attend a materializing seance conducted by Mary and her associates at the Spiritualist Temple in Anderson for 50 cents. 50 cents was on the high side of what they typically charged, probably because it was a holiday. She and a few other girls had ads in the paper almost weekly, and usually the charge was 25 cents. Often they would serve lunch or dinner, and the public was always invited. 
And yes, Mary was a regular at Camp Chesterfield in Indiana, which I'll talk about later. In July of 1921, Mary's husband, Robert, filed for divorce on the grounds that his wife had, quote, nagged and harassed him for the past three years and also made false accusations against him. I guess it makes sense that this kind of life event might lead a woman to move to a new place. Why she chose Covington is unclear. But let me tell you, this woman was always on the move, bouncing back and forth between Kentucky, Indiana, and Ohio throughout her life. In October of 1921, a few months after Robert filed for divorce, she went to Covington just for a visit and was in a car accident, but not badly hurt. After that, it appears she started traveling back and forth very often between Anderson and Covington. Like I mentioned, Covington, Kentucky is very close to Cincinnati in northern Kentucky. The population of Covington was growing like crazy in the 1920s. It reached its peak population in 1930, with just over 65,000 people. During World War I, it was Kentucky's second largest city and second largest economy. The town was completely commercialized during the first two decades of the 20th century, with numerous warehouses, but also a great entertainment district with shops, restaurants, saloons, and theaters. The first mention I found of Mary Langley working as a medium in Kentucky was from an ad for a church service on February 26, 1922 in Covington. Third Spiritualist Church would be serving dinner, H.B. Reimer would give a lecture, and Mary was listed as a trumpet medium, summoning spirits with trumpet noises. I've already talked about spiritualism quite a bit in the past on this show, and on the other show, I wish I had more time to keep making, the Pine Overcoat podcast. You can still find that show out there if you're interested, and look up the Houdini series, because it talked a lot about spiritualism and his relationship with people like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. So, what I just said about Mary Langley acting as a trumpet medium at the Third Spiritualist Church wasn't that unusual. Like, to hear the word spiritualist in the name of a church, if you look at newspapers from this time period, it seems like, especially in this region, there was a major spiritualism movement occurring, and Cincinnati was kind of a hotbed for it. So the, the Cincinnati Inquirer would publish all the services being held by spiritualist churches all over the region, just like any other church service. But it wasn't a secret what they were doing. Uh, they were hosted by mediums, and they would oftentimes conduct seances. I'll post a picture on social media of one list in the paper of all the various services you could go to. It's kind of wild to see. And then right next to the church services, they would also list all the individuals who would be hosting private seances in their home that week. So in 1921, you had a lot of options. There were spiritualist organizations and mediums all over the place. You could walk down any street in Cincinnati or Covington and probably get someone to conduct a seance, summoning whoever you wanted. The churches had names like the Goodwill Spiritualist and the First Spiritual Church of God. And with a lot of these churches, they still practiced regular Christian prayer. The two were very much intertwined. They had regular pastors or preachers. It would just be followed by 
some other stuff. <laughs> so it continued to grow into 1922 when we see this ad for Third Spiritualist Church, where Mary Langley was participating in the services. And she was somewhat a regular at this church for a couple years. Her name appears again in October uh, at the same place with the same people. And one of the speakers she was often working alongside was a man named H.B. Reimer, and he was in the paper a lot. He and his wife were kind of a big deal in, the, um, in that scene. And so he would give sermons with titles like The Spiritual Power and Science of Numbers. So getting into some numerology there. Um, and I saw another one where following the sermon, he was going to offer crystal readings. By 1924, Reimer was in charge of the Spiritual Temple on Gilbert Avenue in Cincinnati, and he and his wife did a great job of bringing in some really well-known figures in that scene, people like Mrs. Evelyn Whittle, the renowned writer and psychologist. The rest of the ad for that service that she attended says, Spirit greetings by competent mediums. Come and bring your friends. And by that point, they had to include the word competent in there because they were starting to get exposed as frauds. I followed Reimer in the papers for the next couple years. He was very successful. Aside from being a pastor at his own church, he traveled a lot, mostly regionally. He and his wife hosted parties at their home to invite people to attend seances in a more private setting. And this was high society. These were highbrow people. And so I bring this all up because I wanted to kind of explain what Mary's role in that Covington society was like. She was popular and she was high class and they operated very much in the public eye. So up until November 1922, Mary Langley is listed as trumpet medium at Third Spiritualist Church. And I should explain what that means in this context. So it actually took me a minute to figure this out too. Trumpet mediums, quote, the listeners are taken into a naturally lighted room furnished in the ordinary way and are asked to sit at a table. They are given trumpets, which are nothing more than cheap tin horns. These they hold to their ears while the medium establishes a connection with the spirit world by touching the trumpets with her hand or arm. Almost immediately after her contact with the trumpet, Noises similar to that of static on the radio is heard, then whispers that grow louder and louder as conversation increases. I should mention that this explanation of the trumpet medium stuff was written by a critic of Mary's, and so the part about, like, them using cheap tin horns, that's just one example, and it's from someone who absolutely thought it was all ridiculous. So the general idea is correct, though. They, they would bring people in, sit them around the circle, or you might do it individually. You'd be given this instrument, um, and then you would hold it to your ears. The medium would establish the connection, and then you would start to hear these noises that would turn into voices from your loved ones, ideally. So that's what Mary did on and off throughout her life, but we do see her start to take on other roles as well. So there's an ad for November that says written message answered by Mrs. Mary Langley, all welcome. So I think that means that she had started using a planchette, which uh, if you guys, if any of you went to the Speed Museum's 
that that really cool exhibit a couple years ago where they had all the spiritualist stuff they had a ton of like old Ouija boards and planchettes and I think I'm saying that right but I think that's what she had switched to for a while but of course she was able to do all of these different things and later in life she would go back to the trumpet messages as her main form of contact with the dead so this last announcement in November um, it's the last time you have to squint or struggle to find Mary's name in the paper because by May of 1923 Mrs. Mary Langley was headline news now I still don't know much about Mary's physical description. I found one drawing of her throughout this entire thing in the newspapers, and I'm not even going to try to use that as a comparison because I don't know how accurate it was. All I know is that at this time, when Mary becomes headline news, she was about 38 or 39 years old. So on May 12, 1923, the headline of the Kentucky Post, a Covington newspaper, read mediums seance raided and it turns out local authorities had their eyes on mary for quite some time there are three separate stories about her in the paper that day the first was written by a man named tom green clearly a skeptic eager to expose her mr green wrote sarcastically that they should be writing his obituary that morning because when he attended a seance at Mary's house on Gerard Street in Covington, she warned him and everyone else in the room not to shine a flashlight at her cabinet assistant, J.H. Alton, or that person would die. She explained to Green and the other guests that flashlights alarm the spirits, and if they were to shine a flashlight, they would probably be paralyzed. And she also warned them that she wasn't responsible for whatever happened to them in that room. She also told them that the law was on her side. Quote, I have a right to hold these meetings. The courts in Kentucky will uphold me. Weird thing to say at that moment. Green said that he could tell others in the room were nervous, waiting for the seance to begin. Mary walked behind a curtain. Her assistant, Mr. Alton, removed a light bulb from the chandelier, and the room went dark. Then a new voice in the room began to speak. Others, who Green assumed had been there before, whispered, it's Rosebud. The voice began calling out to certain individuals to come behind the curtain to talk to dead mothers, husbands, grandparents. Then, finally, the voice called for one of Green's associates, and at this point, I should mention, Tom Green was a police officer. So this other officer he's with gets summoned by this voice, Rosebud. The plan was for whichever officer got called back to go and start talking as if they were trying to summon a loved one with Rosebud. Then whichever officer was left behind would shine their flashlight after a certain verbal cue from the officer sitting with Rosebud. The plan was executed perfectly. Tom Green switched on his flashlight and it became a madhouse. And it became clear the spirit was an empty white gown being shoved under a table. The medium, who at this point was described as hysterical, begged the officers to turn the lights back off. Green said some of the other attendees, the real believers, were upset at the police for conducting this raid, but they felt like they'd clearly proven that Mrs. Langley was pretending to be Rosebud and was ultimately a fraud. 
Ruth Small was not one of those people upset at the police. Ruth had also been in attendance that night, but not as a believer. She was also there to test the validity of Mary Langley. When she was called to speak with Rosebud, she asked if maybe the spirit trying to connect with her was Gladys, implying that she had a dead loved one that wanted to speak to her named Gladys. So of course the spirit said, yes, I am Gladys. When in fact, Gladys was the name of the friend Ruth had brought with her that night to test Mary. Gladys was very much alive, sitting 10 feet away. Then Ruth asked Gladys about a couple other friends who were also alive, but the spirit told her they were living on the other plane and exceedingly happy. In her article, published the same day as Tom Green's after the raid, Ruth added an element of seriousness to the whole thing when she described the sobbing mothers and other family members who were genuinely there out of desperation to speak with their dead loved ones. Ruth noticed that when they would each take their turn, it wasn't difficult to get them to say the name of their loved ones first so that Rosebud wouldn't have to guess. Ruth also said that at the end of her session with Rosebud, she felt two hands lightly press on the top of her head, and though this was meant to feel like a touch from a spirit, she described it as being touched by someone unmistakably human. She said she was not at all surprised when the officers turned on the lights and they saw Mary removing the white gown. Another sad part of this, if it's true, was the statement made by her assistant. J.H. Alton. Sometimes his name is printed as J.W., but I'm pretty sure it was J.H. Mary was arrested that night, but so was her assistant, Mr. Alton, and when he appeared in court, he said, quote, he had been fooled just as much as the public. For 18 months, I attended the cabinet so I could see and be with my wife and two little children, which I lost two years ago. I realize now what a hoax it all was. Ruth Small also wrote a third separate article that day when Langley was all over the front page. She explained how she watched the lights go on in the room and how Covington detective Herman Ricken grabbed Mary as she tried to wiggle out of a white gown. Ruth wrote that the police collected the gown as evidence which would be presented in Covington police court the following Monday. She also explained that the cabinet in the room was just dark green cloth curtains hanging from a pole, and it was designed so that people thought Mary was behind it in some sort of trance summoning the dead, when really she was dressed up as Rosebud. She said before the session started, the place was like a doctor's office waiting room. Mary would come out, socialize with the guests, kind of check in and make them feel comfortable, Everything was pretty cheery. Then they all went in the room, lights went down, they said the Lord's Prayer, and then sang a couple songs to, quote, prepare the vibrations for penetration into the spirit world. Ruth also wrote that during the session, she heard Rosebud tell one man from Louisville that he should pick the horse named Pumps to win an upcoming race. Quote, he's a good horse. 
she assured the room she was good at picking horses. Ruth was also able to somehow take a peek at Mary's calendar, and she could see how Mary would keep track of the names of people's loved ones. Most clients had weekly appointments. Some came twice a week. The schedule was very full, and business was obviously booming. Both Mary and her assistant were charged with disorderly conduct. Alton went before a judge the Saturday morning after the raid and tried to convince him that he was fooled by her just like everybody else and that he should be released, but the judge denied his request. The morning of their arraignment, they were formally charged, and Mary's trial was continued until May 22nd. Even this first court date was a bit dramatic. Her attorney, Martin Durrett, proudly proclaimed that his client, Mary, refused to be run out of the city, and everyone in the courtroom cheered and applauded. And this made the judge so mad that he threatened to start throwing people in jail. Some of those in the courtroom were, of course, the witnesses who had been at the raid Friday night. But the raid had no effect on their belief in her abilities, and so most of them were there in support of her. They were even floating rumors that the police had planted that robe in the room. So here's what Detective Rickon told the courtroom. He had just completed talking with the spirit of a sister who had never existed, and then the spirit of his grandmother was announced. At that moment, he made a grab for the white-robed object in front of him, and it proved to be Mrs. Langley. The medium wriggled from Rickon and succeeded in slipping to the floor and made frantic efforts to throw the white gown from the cabinet. Rickon followed the white object through the flickering light and saw it thrown under the table next to the cabinet. After Rickon recounted his version of events, defense attorney Durrett attacked the presiding judge Manson, asking the judge if he'd already made a decision in the case before it went to trial. Durrett threatened to request to have him removed because this judge had apparently been overheard saying things like, I'm going to run all the spiritualists out of this city. I also think it's worth mentioning that in several of these articles, her attorney, Mr. Durrett, is described as a believer. He was part of the spiritualist community. After the trial, he said, quote, the absolute reasonableness appeals to me. Some of the most beautiful messages I have heard or have read came in a seance. Materialization has scientifically been established. I have confidence in Mrs. Langley. Judge Manson ended up staying on the case, and Mary and her attorneys put in a strange request. Mary was toying with the idea of conducting a seance in court during her trial to prove that she was the real deal. And Judge Manson said he would allow it, but not in front of a large crowd. The seance was scheduled for the following Monday in police court. And this is where this is where this story starts to become like something not in real life to me. But this really happened. This judge was going to allow this. So it gets scheduled for the following Monday, authorized personnel only. And then their trial was set to begin the following Tuesday morning. But the judge decided, hey, why not go ahead and just start their trials the same night as the seance? Unfortunately, when that Monday rolled around, Mary had fallen ill and her attorney had to request a continuance, which was granted. So the trial and the seance were rescheduled for May 31st. To add to the growing anticipation, 
the horse Rosebud had given a tip about, pumps, won a race. He actually didn't win the first couple at the start of the season, but the fact that he did end up winning one just added to Mary Langley's mystique, and it was heavily reported in the papers and the days leading up to her trial. One article read, quote, If little Rosebud will guarantee her horses will win one and three times out, she'll find a good crowd willing to attend her seances during the coming Latonia race meet. So like I said, this demonstration was intended to be very private. They wanted to have it conducted in the basement of the courthouse, and it would be limited to about 12 people, including Judge Manson, Prosecutor Joseph Dochengal, Chief of Police J. Mason Hawk, four reporters, and a half dozen of Mary Langley's followers. Mr. Durrett, her attorney, actually encouraged her to do this seance, and he was quite strategic about it and, and why. He wanted Judge Manson to see that religious ritual was involved in these seances, that they had a religious element to them. He wanted the judge to hear the prayers and songs that they sang before Mary got started, and he thought that that might sway the judge to see it as less of like a deviant, dark magic kind of thing and more as just a religious practice. I should mention, uh, I guess, because this is all happening in police court, there is no jury. Uh, these articles only mention a judge, and I think that's why. And I just listed everyone who was invited to the seance, but I think it's worth noting the chief of police politely declined the invitation. And it makes you wonder if he wasn't just sitting back, rolling his eyes at this whole thing. To add even another element of mystery to this case, we have to mention David Rogers. Rogers was another police officer who entered the scene right after the lights went on at the Gerard Street house during the raid. And coincidentally, he died in a motorcycle accident the day after the raid. And so Mary was taking that opportunity to tell her followers and supporters that Officer Rogers had been communicating with her from beyond and that he was apologizing for the part he played in the raid of her home. So the implication here was, you know, she warned everybody that if you interrupt the seance or turn on the lights, you'll die. So she was using him as an example, which was pretty powerful stuff at the time. Another article came out revealing that another witness they added to this upcoming courthouse seance would be some sort of scientist there to confirm Mary's validity. Remember, this is a time when the worlds of spiritualism, science, and religion are colliding. Scientific American was actually offering a prize to anyone who could prove they could produce spirits. Uh, Harry Houdini was one of the judges in this uh, competition. So on either the 28th or the 29th of May, they attempted to hold this seance at the city building. They've got her ready to go. She's about to start the seance and summon some spirits. But two women, who also claimed to be mediums, barged in and stopped it. They said, you can't let her do this while she's like wearing her own stuff. You have to search her first. And so the courtroom just turns into a complete chaotic mess. And her attorney emphatically objects to anyone searching her. And the whole thing falls apart and they call off the seance for the night. Not going to happen. 
Well, that's actually one version of the story. Another newspaper reported that the first attempt at a seance by Mary Langley did occur, but since all of her normal equipment was being held as evidence, she had to use a thick blanket provided by the police. And it was reported that perhaps the blanket was too thick because no spirits could penetrate it that evening. So depending on which paper you believe, either the seance was interrupted or it failed. Either way, things weren't looking great for Mary. And together, the judge and the attorneys decided it might be fair to let Mary host a seance in her own home on Gerard Street. So the whole group picked up and went over to the house, and they had several witnesses with them, and they watched as Mary set up. Of course, she still didn't have some of her, her own materials, so she had to use what the police provided. She went behind her makeshift blanket curtain, went into her trance, and there was a flickering behind the curtain and a voice that introduced itself as Pansy. And one female witness said, that's my daughter. That female witness was a secretary from the city building, and she asked Pansy if she could come out from behind the curtain, but Pansy didn't want to. And this mother, the city building employee, begged for this child to come out, but the voice refused to show itself. This went on for a few moments, and then Mary, in her own voice, started coughing and begging for a glass of water, saying it was too hot to continue. And everyone in the room urged her to keep going, but she refused, and that was it. Now, could Mary have asked around while she was in custody to quickly figure out what this woman's daughter's name was? Yeah, absolutely she could have. So by now, I think the judge, chief of police, and prosecutors had really had enough. They were ready to put this case to bed. So Mary's trial was set for a few days later at the end of May, and she and Mr. Alton would be tried together. Their trial lasted a day and a half. Mary Langley spent a long time testifying. And again, she tried to kind of use the argument that her business was a religious practice. Um, they did display the white gown from the raid, and when questioned about it, she said she didn't know anything about that gown, implying, like others did, that the police had planted it. And she said, listen, when spirits appear in my house, they wear their own, like they're wearing clothes. I don't put clothes on them. They show up dressed. <laughs> but she also said she had no idea what went on during the seances because she was unconscious in a trance while they happened. Mary also claimed on the stand that she was recognized as a teacher and medium by the National Society of Spiritualists, and she had certificates allowing her to conduct seances in Indiana. Finally, she explained that if there were non-believers present during a seance, it was way more difficult to make spirits materialize. They were both found guilty. Mary Langley was given a $100 fine and sentenced to 50 days in jail. Calculated for inflation, that's only like $1,700 today, but it was the maximum sentence you could get for disorderly conduct in Covington in 1923. Her assistant, Mr. Alton, was only fined $15. And again, I mean, if, if the guy was telling the truth, you have to feel kind of bad for him. You know, maybe he was just participating 
hoping to see his dead wife and children, uh, or he just needed to make some money. We'll never know. After all of this is said and done, some people might call it quits, you know, after being tested like that and having to sit in jail and go through the trial and everything, some people might have given up being a medium, hosting seances, just move on and do something else, but not Mary Langley. After she was sentenced, I didn't see a single other thing about this trial in the papers. So as far as I know, she served her 50 days, was released to her home on Gerard Street, and things were quiet for just a little while. But by August, she was in the headlines again, and this time she wasn't in trouble. She was helping to incorporate the Spiritualist Research Society of Covington. She was one of nine founders of this society, and this it was a business. A few days after the initial announcement, they were granted a charter from the city. Um, so it, it's just very interesting to me that after getting in trouble for being a medium, she is very publicly helping to create this spiritualist research society. And just generally, it seemed like she was doing very well for herself. She appeared in articles about Camp Chesterfield in 1925, which I mentioned towards the top of the episode. Camp Chesterfield was a, and is, a spiritual center in Indiana. It still exists today, and it has such a rich history, it's very old, that I'm actually going to save the details for a future episode. But it was a very popular place for spiritualists, and Mary was often a special guest lecturer there. And this is when ectoplasm was the big thing, and there's this amazing drawing of her I found, and it's the only time there was ever any sort of picture showing what she may have looked like um, in the paper in 1925. And the drawing shows how she described what it looks like when spirits manifest and like the ectoplasm around her. So you'll have to see it. I'll post it on social media. It's great. Another interesting thing about her is that she does not leave Covington right after her trial. She does eventually keep moving around, but she stays in Covington. So, you know, they meant it when they said she wasn't going to be run out of the city. So not only did she stay, but she remained a prominent and respected figure. I think it's fair to say she was a socialite. Back then, if you were important in society, your comings and goings were announced in the papers, and hers were pretty regularly. For example, in February of 1926, quote, Mrs. Mary Langley of Covington will spend the week with Sarah Shade of 1125 North Main Street. Mrs. Langley will assist in the Sunday evening services at 7.30 in the First Church of Psychic Truth, Rao Hall, East 4th Street. She was back to doing her trumpet medium work around that time in 1926. There's an ad for that same church, and it offers Trumpet in the Light by the medium, Mrs. Mary Langley. The following year, she was doing the same thing at the Liberal Thought Spiritualist Church on West 8th Street. So just still operating completely in the public eye, advertising it in the papers.
1928, five years after the arrest and trial of Mary Langley, the Kentucky Post headline read, quote, Spirits even avoid the truth. Mrs. Langley says she is not responsible for what is said. Medium talks of suing revealed that old police case against her was dismissed. I really enjoy this part of this story, this ongoing battle between Mary and the Kentucky Post. They had recently written some articles throwing shade at her favored style of trumpet reading, just saying that it wasn't real. And this time, she was threatening to sue the newspaper. And basically, she said, I'm not lying about every, anything. The spirits that I summon might get something wrong, but that's not on me. That's on the spirits. What happened was a reporter had gone undercover to expose her before this came out. And apparently Mary talked to this person in German. And she came out in response to the article and was like, wait a minute, I don't even know any German. It couldn't have been me. It had to have been a spirit that I summoned. But what they think really happened was Mary saw this reporter's last name, assumed it was very German and that her family must have been German. And so that's how she spoke to this undercover reporter while pretending to be her dead uncle. But the reporter was like, no one in my family ever spoke any German. It made absolutely no sense. What might make sense, though, is that Mary Langley could very well know German. I remembered from my research that Mary's maiden name was Hinderer, and I remembered reading that although her family was living in Ohio at the time of her birth, her dad lived in Pennsylvania before that, and I found multiple records of a John Hinderer from Pennsylvania with parents from Germany. One account actually said John was born in Germany. So my point is, it might make sense that Mary learned German from it being passed down generationally through her family. The other interesting thing about this 1928 article is that the Post revealed that Mary did appeal her case back in 1923, and she was actually granted an appeal, and the case was dismissed. So I do still think she served some jail time, but maybe not her full sentence. The next year, 1929, was a happier one for Mary as she became Mary Beatty. She married a printer named Orange Beatty from Dayton, Ohio. Together, they did some more touring. There's an ad for Mary Langley Beatty in the Courier-Journal in 1931. She visited Louisville at the Red Cross Room on the sixth floor of the Strand Building. Her title in the ad is Daylight Trumpet Medium, and it says, We'll give messages in church. Mary's whereabouts in the 1930s can be tracked by ads and local papers throughout Kentucky, Indiana, and Ohio. In the Dayton Herald in 1941, she and her husband are listed as hosting a spiritualist service. So by then, he was a full-blown participant in these events. He was listed as the speaker. She was listed as card-writing message bearer. In 1945, she was back in Anderson, where Camp Chesterfield is, giving demonstrations on how she did her card-writing. And then in 1950, it was reported in a newspaper out of Urbana, Ohio, that Mary Beatty deeded her son and granddaughter 84 acres in that township in Ohio. That's a pretty good chunk of land. That December, there was an announcement in a Greenville, Ohio newspaper that Mary and her husband were hosting a Christmas event at the Spiritualist Church in, in Greenville. And by now, she was being referred to as Reverend Mary Beatty 
and so was her husband, Reverend Orange Beatty, which is unusual, and I'll explain in a minute why that's so strange. Two years later, in 1952, Mary passed away at the age of 68 after a six-week illness from heart trouble. I, she, I think she lived in New Madison, Ohio, for the seven years leading up to her death. She was still a member of the Indiana Association of Spiritualists, and she would be buried in Memorial Park Cemetery in Dayton. Now, here's why it's so interesting. I, I wish I knew more about her second husband, Orange. When Mr. Beatty passed away several years later in September of 1963, there was zero mention of any spiritualism connection or anything religious at all. He certainly wasn't referred to as reverend. And interestingly enough, there's no mention of his wife, Mary, either. So in his obituary, he's listed as a very normal-sounding guy. And if I had to guess, I would say it's possible that his life took a very sharp turn when he met Mary going from a longtime career printer to a spiritualist reverend. Throughout the 1940s, they were a team, traveling together, spreading the spiritualist word and practices together, and then it just stopped. Uh, his last years in life, all remnants of that version of his life were gone when Mary died. I think that's just very interesting. To wrap up this episode, I want to read one article, and it's not about our main character, Mary Langley. It's actually about her attorney, Martin Durrett. I think I've bounced back and forth between saying Durrett and Durrett during this episode. I can't say for sure which it is, but this was in the Kentucky Post, uh, January 27th, 1928. And I'm going to read you the whole thing here. I did print it out, and it's a little small, so bear with me. It says... They go and seek the spirit of a wife after her death, and they find great consolations in the results. When his wife died in the year 1913, Martin Durrett's love found a bridge from here into hereafter. Over this, his dead wife often came to him out of the void. Now Martin Durrett himself has died, and whether he himself now has crossed this bridge, or whether it was only the fond faith of his great love, is left to the discussions of the Cincinnati Society for Psychical Research, of which he was president. Martin Durrett was a lawyer in Covington, a man of keenest legal mind, a former president of the Bar Association of Kenton County. It is said that until the death of his wife, his interest in a hereafter was the casual one of most men. Like most men, he believed in the immoral, immortal nature of the soul and took for granted its continuity in some form of existence. Between Martin Durrett and his wife, there was an affection not often seen in a world in which married life is regarded as a problem to which many doctors come with cures. His wife's death left Martin Durrett gazing into the void into which she had departed. She was as one who had passed through a door which had immediately closed when she entered. Martin Durrett stood at the door questioning, might a man unlock it? Might it not be opened and the lost found again? Must a man wait for death to restore him to his beloved? Martin Durrett sought the aid of philosophies, and one day the door opened to him. 
Infinity was bridged and the spirit of his wife came to Martin Durette. The doubters may say it was only the undying love of the man conjuring the wish of his heart, but to Martin Durette it was no poetic fancy. She came to him as a real presence. He was in communion with her. She counseled him in the affairs of his life. She convinced him of the individual continuity of the soul after death. He told his friends that sometimes she came to him with a fragrance of flowers. Martin Durette was a happy man. Where others stood with dumb grief before the sealed door, he felt he could open it at will for joyous unions. Those who knew the man never doubted the depth of his sincerity, even though they might regard spiritualistic phenomena generally with skeptical eyes. They credited his experience to a majestic faith that could conquer even the grave. Martin Durette had no doubts. For him, immortality was not a distant hope, but a fact of experience proved by his senses. That others might share in the vast consolation that he found, he became interested in the effort to convince mankind that there is no death but only a transition, that whoever seeks may find, as he did, the key to the closed door and behold the bridge between here and hereafter. He became the president of the Society for Psychical Research that seeks convincing proof of the continuity of the individual spirit. The other day Martin Durrett died, rejoicing in the conviction of an everlasting reunion with his beloved. I hope you enjoyed episode 130 of Kentucky History and Haunts. If you're on Facebook, be sure to search the group Kentucky History and Haunts and more. The group is growing and it's a lot of fun to share stories of our haunted houses and upcoming events and all kinds of good stuff. Also, if you have a topic suggestion, you can always email kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and until next time.